Welcome to another episode of Bear Talk. My topic today is religion and science. Are religion and science compatible or incompatible? Does science undermine religious belief and faith? Or does science even enhance and enrich religious faith? My guest today is going to be Stephen Barr, a recently retired theoretical particle physicist at the University of Delaware. And Professor Barr is also the president of the Society of Catholic Scientists. So he is a highly successful, well-established physicist, scientist, and also a religious believer. Uh, Professor Barr is also the author of well, he's author of a number of books, but one book that I use in some of my uh, classes at Texas Lutheran uh, called Modern Physics and Ancient Faith, where Professor Barr explores the question about the religion relationship between uh, science and religion. So I was able to get Professor Barr to agree to come on to my podcast to discuss some of the issues that he covers in his book and to discuss more broadly the question of whether or not science and, and faith are compatible. We also, um, during the course of the conversation, uh, went through or discussed some interesting arguments for God's existence. Uh, so on the whole, it was a very, for me a very enjoyable and interesting conversation, and I hope you enjoy it also. Stephen Barr, thank you for uh, coming on my podcast today. Thank you uh, very much for having me. Uh, to talk about uh, science and religion or science and faith. So I thought maybe just at the start, you might uh, just maybe you could introduce yourself a little bit to the my audience, explain, you know, who you are and your why both of these topics are things you're qualified to talk about. Okay. Uh, well, my name is Stephen Barr. And uh, I am a theoretical physicist by uh, profession. Uh, my particular field is particle, theoretical particle physics. Uh, but I've also, over the last 25 years, done a lot of writing and speaking about uh, the relation of science and faith, uh, written a book, actually a couple of books on that. Uh, and I retired at the relatively early age of 66, as two years ago. Uh, from my professor position. I'm a professor emeritus at the University of Delaware. Uh, but I retired from being an active professor so that I could devote my entire energy to running an organization that we founded about uh, five years ago called the Society of Catholic Scientists. And it's uh, grown to over about 1,650 members in 54 countries. So it's uh, quite a lot of work involved in, 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 in being the president of it. I'm the president of the Society of Catholic Scientists. So that's why I've uh, retired from research and teaching uh, a couple of years ago. Okay, good. Yeah, and you have this, uh, you've written this book, you made, uh, Modern Physics and Ancient Faith, among other right. things, and some articles. And I, I use some sections of that with my students in my theology class to uh, try to get them to think a little bit about uh, faith and science or faith and reason. Right. Uh, so yeah, I wrote that book in 2003. So it's kind a of little a little old. Okay. Goldie, but, goldie now. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I tried to write it. I tried to write it so that it would, uh, it would not become dated. That is, there's very little in the book. Uh, they actually came out with a second edition in 2000. I forget when it was 2013 or something. Uh, and very almost nothing did I have to apologize or change because it was. I tried ah. to make it, uh, uh, you know, so that it would be continue to be valid for a long well, time. It's, it's yeah, it still works. It still works <laughs> in my class. Well, so what, maybe you could just describe a little bit how you 
you yourself think of the relationship between science and faith or how, how do these two sort of domains relate to each other and your, your oh I, I guess i should back up yeah, and okay. say about uh, myself that uh, i'm also religious obviously yeah. and i'm catholic i was i'm a cradle catholic uh raised catholic but we can talk more about that later i suppose my my religious uh biography um how are they related well uh they're both ways of understanding reality the the uh empirical science and uh, the, and the Christian faith are both ways of making sense of, of the world. Uh, I mean, well, our faith is more than that. It also has to do with our salvation, but uh, it, does, it does give us a way of understanding the world. Um, and the way both empirical science and, and, uh, and the, the teachings of our faith are uh, sort of windows on the uh, on the truth about reality but they see things from different perspectives but not conflicting but but different um you know so empirical science is is learning about the world around us uh through uh reason and 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 experience uh whereas our faith is based on divine revelation uh and so the, the different avenues to the truth but uh they uh, if if they're right, <laughs> they have to cohere with each other. That is what we know by reason, including empirical science, and what we know by faith had better at least be consistent with each other uh, if they're both telling us the truth. So that, in a nutshell, um, is what is how I would see the relation. So, so you don't see them as uh, uh, completely separated uh, domains or conflicting, you know, sort of... No, there's... They certainly don't, if they conflict, then one of them is wrong. Uh, and I don't think uh, either of them is wrong. Uh, well, I mean, uh, at any given time, uh, we don't have a complete picture of, of the natural world. I'm talking, when I talk about science, I'm always talking about natural science because I'm a physicist. I'm not talking about the, the, the social sciences. That, that, that's more complicated. But uh, I mean, uh, we don't have a complete picture of the physical world at any given time. And some of what we think we know is probably wrong or not complete or not the whole story. And in the same way, we don't have a full understanding of, of revealed truth. I mean, at any given moment in the history of the church, uh, there are matters that remain obscure or issues that haven't been thought through and uh, not, not completely crystallized and clear. Uh, and so at any given time, there might be theological ideas out there, ideas held by theologians about revel, revealed truth that are, that are inadequate. And there might be ideas about, by, uh, of scientists about the natural world, which are inadequate. And as a consequence, there can be tension between what theologians think and what scientists think. Um, one believes if, uh, that if we had a fully adequate grasp of revelation and a fully adequate understanding of the natural world, we would see that there's no conflict between those two pictures. Uh, but they, you know, they see the same thing within science or within theology. So within science, uh, we have at any given time, there can be scientific ideas, both of which, which seem to be in tension with each other uh, because we don't have a completely adequate, full understanding of the natural world at any given time. There can be things, there can be two things that we know about nature or think we know 
that are in an uneasy relationship with each other. So, you know, for a long time, it wasn't clear, for example, take my field, how quantum mechanics could be fit together with uh, Einstein's theory of gravity. And we had very strong and continue to have ex very strong reasons to believe both of them. And yet they had some attention between them. And so that, that's to be expected. That's not something to be terribly worried about that the same thing that happens within science or within theology, it might happen between the two. But in the long run, you know, the, the more, hopefully, the better we understand the natural world, the, the better we understand divine revelation, the, the better we will see that they're in harmony with each other. All right. So in your uh, in this in the book, the modern physics and ancient faith, you have you spend some time talking about what you call scientific materialism, which is a which is a sort of a I guess it's a flaw, a distort a bad understanding of science or something like that. Well, it's not just an understanding of science; it's an understand. Well, so, uh, so explain what scientific yeah, so, what you mean so by that. I, what I say in the book, and and this is not original. Very little in my book is actually original. Uh, but there is what people often, many people perceive as a conflict between religion, that when I mean religion, I mean, let's say, Christianity, biblical religion, between religion and science is not really between religion and science, it's between religion and a certain philosophy, which is not, which is often called scientific materialism, which is not science, it's a philosophical position, which materialism is the view that the only reality is matter. Everything ultimately is reducible to matter and its behavior. And scientific materialism is just called that because uh, it's, 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 it's uh, uh, materialism that is inspired by or, or, or uh, justifies itself as being a, um, the scientific view of things. So scientific materialists are people who think that's, that science implies or entails that if you're really scientific, you have to believe that only matter exists. And um, another name for it, I think a more popular name nowadays is physicalism. Um, so materialism is the view that only matter, the only reality ultimately is matter. And uh, physicalism is a, is, a, is a, I guess, a version of that which says, the only reality is phys all physics is gives an adequate account of all of reality. There's nothing to reality that that is not really just physics. So, so that because so when you let's just say that the uh, this idea that all that's real is matter. I mean, one of the questions that um, this is not yet a theological question. I mean, a lot of the things that uh, you study in a field like physics. I mean, this. Matt, it's not even, I mean, you can't see a lot of them, right? You can't directly, act, I mean, electromagnetism or whatever, nuclear forces. I mean, what is that? It's not matter. That's matter. What is that? It is? Matter. Well, Everything's I say, matter. I would right. say it is. I mean, I, I, to a physicist, now, you know, sometimes you hear philosophers or, or theologians or philosophers or, you know, um, other people say, well, there's matter, but what about things like electric fields or energy? Yeah, yeah energy. Energy yeah. is energy. The, to a physicist, that's all physical stuff. I mean, uh, to a physicist uh, such as myself and just about any other physicist, really um, all of that stuff, energy, 
what matter matter is not a technical term, by the way, in physics. It's used, but it's used in a colloquial way. There's not a it's not a technical term. Energy is a technical term with precise mm -hmm. definitions. Matter is a colloquial term. But you know, uh, an electron. Uh, you, you might point to things like particles, like electrons or protons or hydrogen atoms. So that's matter. Okay, that's what uh, most people would say. That's matter. But so are, so is energy. Energy, matter. It's, it's all physical stuff. Um, there's really electric fields, all of that stuff. Uh, but, okay, so, so but I mean, we don't, we don't distinguish and say that some of the things we study is is material and. Uh, well, it's like, say, everything that we know, uh, well, maybe this is not fair, this is probably not accurate from a point of view of physics, but everything that we know is out there, we're going to call matter is sort of a description of the world that's accessible to us through science. See, the, the, the word matter is a tricky one because it's used in different ways in different fields. So, for example, mm -hmm. in Aristotelian philosophy, there's, there's, there's the word matter is used and in theology, it's used in certain mm -hmm. ways. Um, and it depends on who's talking. So in physics, as I said, it's used colloquially. So for example, if you were doing electromagnetism, if you're studying electromagnetism, you would distinguish, for example, uh, sometimes you would distinguish the matter, and that would consist of the particles that carry electric charge from the electric field and magnetic fields. So you say, well, we have electric and magnetic fields, and then over here, and then we have the matter, which is the charged particle. But, but if you're studying gravity, you would say, well, we have the gravitational field and everything else is matter. All the stuff that carries mass and energy, which gravitates, is, is uh, so, even, so the, in context, if, you, if you're talk, talking about gravity, you would say, well, you have gravitational fields over here. And over here, we have all the matter, which would include the electric and magnetic fields. So it's, it's context dependent. It's not, as I say, it's not a technical term. It's 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 used colloquially in the different situations. You would use the word matter differently in a sort of loose, commonsensical way. It's not okay. a technical. It's well, a word we should probably avoid. So I would like to actually say, okay. let's forget the word matter and say the physicalist believes that everything is physics. And in and okay. by physics, we mean all the stuff to a physicist. The world is a single interacting system of physical stuff, which includes particles and fields and energy and so forth, all described by a set of equations, which are the laws of physics. And, and that's what we mean. That's the physical universe. It's a single interacting system described by a, a set of equations uh, that call the laws of physics. And that everything, anything contained in that is physical stuff. All right. So let, let's suppose I want to argue then, uh, not exactly on behalf of the scientific materialists, but I want to argue on sort of this view that science and religion are somehow incompatible. And I say something like, well, I want to draw a distinction between uh, science as an account of reality, what, of stuff or physics, or, mm -hmm. which I, I'll, I'll grant that uh, we don't have a full account of reality. Uh, oh, you know, our, uh, our understanding physics. of reality is, yeah, oh, physics, sorry, is incomplete. But I, uh, I still think, this is my argument, that the scientific method and the, and the methods that we use in scientific investigation are the methods that are going to give us the complete um, grasp of reality at some point. In other words, our path okay. towards reality is using the scientific method or something like it. Well, okay, so, there's two different issues here. Yeah. yeah. 
One is the question of what types of things exist. Let's what the philosophers say is ontology. Yeah. What kinds? Of, what? What? What kinds of things exist? There's a second is a question of methodology, and that's yeah. a completely different issue. So uh, physicalism is a, is is making a claim. Not it has nothing to do with methodology. Physicalism, or materialism, is the claim that on, the only things that exist are physical, are physical, okay, ent- right. are physical entities, and the behavior of physical entities. So, for example, the human mind, to a physicalist, our thoughts, uh, are just our thoughts are simply behaviors of physical of a physical system. It's simply uh, physical stuff behaving in a certain way. That's all there is. That's an ontological question. Now, the scientific method, the question of whether certain methods are the, are, are, give you truth or are the only ways to give you truth, that's a, that's a different All right, but well, let's put it that, let's, so I say, I'm, gonna, I'm making the argument that, well, look, we, you know, the real problem with uh, the sort of religious dogmas and, or the idea of God and so forth is that there's just no method uh, that we could ever use to okay. to find out or answer okay. these questions. Yeah. All right, that's good. So let's get yeah. away from materialism because yeah. you know you could use the scientific method to to study things, even if one is not a materialist. Suppose one says the mind is the mind is something distinct from physical stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can still study mind scientifically. You could have a field of psychology where you use empirical methods to study mental phenomena and their relation to physical phenomena. And you could say, well, when we stick an electrode in the brain and do this, then the person has this kind of mental uh, phenomena result. That's scientific method. It doesn't, scientific method doesn't entail or assume that only matter exists right. or physical stuff exists. You could, it, it's a methodology and it could be applied even if there's other things than physical stuff. Now, um, the question, I think what you're really asking is, uh, science is based on the idea that, uh, on well, this is what the atheists would say. This, uh, they would say, you know, science is based on reason and evidence, you know, and empirical evidence and reason. And, and what's your evidence for God, for example? You know, you certainly can't do an experiment in a laboratory and, and, and measures anything about God. So what's your evidence? And right. Or, yeah. And so the answer to that, I, I think, so first of all, um, I give I'll give several couple of answers to okay. that. Okay. First of all, what kind of evidence are you asking for? So, uh, a very simple-minded uh, idea would be the evidence. Uh, so, if if one is a physicalist or a materialist, uh, one would say that that uh, we we know about the existence of things in the. How do we know about the existence of physical entities? Well, we know about the existence of physical entities, parts of the physical universe, in one of two ways. We either observe them with our senses, or we infer their existence as the natural causes of what we observe with our senses. So a compass needle is some, or a compass and a compass needle are something I can observe with my senses, I can see them. But uh, we see the compass needle move and we say, we infer the existence of magnetic fields causing which are the natural cause of that compass needle moving and we don't see humans cannot sense magnetic fields some some creatures can we can't we only know the magnetic fields exist by inference but we infer them as the natural cause of something now god right admittedly 
cannot be uh, known in either of those ways. Because first of all, God cannot be perceived with the senses because he's not a physical entity. According to, I'm talking from the, I'm a Catholic. I'm talking, talking from the viewpoint of We'll let it pass. Catholic good, Christian. Yeah. Yeah. So God is not a physical entity. He's not a part of the physical universe. So he's he's can't be sensed, nor is he a physical or a natural cause within the physical universe. He's not like a magnetic field or uh, or something like that, that you could, that, that physically, God is not a physical cause within the physical universe. So you can't infer him his existence in the so, way so you can't infer. infer you couldn't infer god because uh god not is not a cause or, or not, I mean, why no, couldn't why couldn't a physical the... cause he's uh, not a natural he's not a physical cause he's not a physical entity he's not a cause within nat within nature so how do we infer but, yeah god? so but let, if god exists and why shouldn't there be evidence uh of god's existence sort of in, that that can be inferred from empirical observation let's say i'm saying so i'm saying god, god can be inferred. Uh, okay. i'm just saying all not right. in that way okay so, all right all uh, right let me okay it. go ahead go ahead good, good let me continue yeah. so i'm saying god is not the way we infer things in in physics which is what the this physicalist or the scientific materialist would like to say is the only way we can know things so the scientific material is the only way we know things mm -hmm. is the way we know the existence of physical entities. And that is by sensing them or by inferring their existence as physical causes. Mm -hmm. That I don't, I don't agree that that's the only way you can infer the existence of something. We can infer the existence of God, but not as a physical cause. He's not like a magnetic field. You can't put a compass out there and have the compass needle point to God. He's not a physical cause. Mm -hmm. Now, how do we infer his existence? We infer his existence as, so what was the evidence? Let's take evidence based on the physical universe. If you go back to early Christian writings, and I could give, I unfortunately don't have the quotes here. I left them in my office, but there's, you go back to early Christian writings, you find over and over and over, then pointing to two ways that the physical world points to God. One is by the very fact that the world exists. So they say there has to be a cause of being. There has to be a cause of the fact that the universe has existence, that it's real, that it's an actual really existing universe. Second, they point to the fact that the universe is orderly. That it, that it, and lawful, but aside from whether it satisfies mathematical laws, and it's an orderly place. There's a lot of order in nature, and there has to be a cause of the fact that the world has order instead of being just haphazard, chaotic, completely disorganized. And so God is the cause of being, and God is the cause of order. Now, let me use an analogy. If I look at, uh, so, but you see, he's not a cause of the world's being by a physical mechanism. God isn't sitting there in a workshop manipulating physical tools to make the physical universe. So he's not a physical cause. He's not a cause. He's also not a cause within nature. He's a cause of nature. He's the reason there's a universe at all, but he's not a part of the universe. So uh, I would use the analogy of an author of a, of a novel or the composer of a piece of music. The, 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 uh, the composer of a symphony is not part of the symphony. 
you will not find him among the notes of the symphony. You could poke around in the notes of the symphony and you will not run into the composer, but you can infer his existence as the cause of there being a symphony and as the cause of its order. In the same way in a novel, let's take uh, Lord of the Rings or something. Uh, Tolkien is not a character within the novel. You, if you lived in Middle Earth, you would not run into Tolkien. You would not be able to empirically verify Tolkien's existence by finding his footprints or something else in Middle Earth that Tolkien was there because he's not a part of Middle Earth. He's not a part of the novel, but he is the cause of the novel. And so just as a novel is evidence by its mere existence and order, the novel is ev gives evidence or testifies to the existence of an author, even if the author is not in the novel. And the symphony testifies to the existence of a composer, even if the composer is not a part of the symphony. And in the same way, God, though not a part of the universe, is, his existence is testified to by the mere fact that there is a universe and that okay. it has an orderly structure. And okay. that testifies to its author which is who is God. But the, the, the see, but the, the, the materialist wants to, he wants to sort of say, I, I, like, like that episode where the Soviets sent the, the first astronaut, I guess Yuri Gagarin, up into Earth orbit. And they triumphantly announced, I guess Khrushchev announced, they didn't see God up there. Well, that's childish because God is not a part of, of the physical universe. You're not going to run into him on the street any more than you would run into Tolkien in Middle Earth. That's a childish notion. But, it's, but that's based on the idea that the only way to know things is to physically encounter them, either directly through our senses or encounter them indirectly as physical causes. Oh, okay, so we could go on because you basically you're touching on the... Um... Uh, uh, we're touching on these sort of arguments for God's existence. Right. Well, that's what you're asking about. Right, right. So we're going in that direction. So we, um, I'm just thinking here, we should go down that. I think those arguments are so interesting. It's worth for people to hear them. Um, so let's do that. Let's go there. And then I guess the other kind of question has to do then with, I, I somehow want to go back a little bit at some point to thinking about the, the domains of knowledge that are this, that uh, in, in whatever science and and religion or faith. So this, how we're going to think about sort of maybe we'll call it reveal truth, the religious truths, or okay. So, but let's 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 maybe let's do the let's do the argument. G give me a rundown because it's so interesting and I think it's good for people to hear. Let's just kind of do a a, a short a short summary of the. I guess this is the uh, uh, argument from design. I guess it depends on what you mean by that. Uh, so first of all. In the world of philosophy, the term argument from design has a long and venerable history. But the word, when people hear the word design since the late 1990s, they think of a specific thing called the intelligent design movement. And that's quite unfortunate. Yeah, no, yeah, that's not what And I'm I want about. to make a distinction. So, so the word design goes way back farther than that. Uh, and so I would say, let me not use the word design because if it's been sort of uh, corrupted, by it, it's acquired all of this baggage because of the intelligence I move on. I would call it the argument from the old argument. As I said, if you go back to the early church fathers, if you go back to St. Irenaeus and St. Uh, you know, and, and Lactantius and Origen and, 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 uh, and early, early church fathers, St. Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory, they, they make the order, as I said earlier, that the fact that the world is orderly 
is testifies to God. And in fact, if you listen to them, they, they use that word, they, they talk, they use four words constantly as evidence of God, that the world is orderly, that it's lawful, that it's harmonious, and it's beautiful. They, those are all linked together. And so, and what they point to, and I, I will make a contrast between the, the, that old argument, I call the argument from cosmic order. Mm-hmm. And the recent arguments of the intelligent design movement, and I would contrast them in three ways. Uh, by the way, so the old, so Origen, for example, was it, or no, St. Irenaeus, so like writing about 200 AD, he says, God is the father, the creator, the author, the giver of order, okay? uh, just as an example. Now, that is different from the intelligent design. First of all, the intelligent design movement isn't talking about order as such. It talks about complexity. Okay. Uh, first of all, the intelligent design movement focuses on biology primarily. And they look at phenomena in the biological world that they say exhibit such complexity that they could not be explained by evolution. Well, the old argument from order was not focused on complexity. It was focused, as I, as I said, on order, lawfulness, harmony, and beauty of nature. Second, it wasn't focused on just biology. It was focused on the whole created world, that you find order everywhere, in the heavens and on earth. As, as Minucius Felix, writing again around 200 AD, in a, in, a, in, a, in a treatise aimed at his pagan contemporaries to convince them that there was a God, a creator, he said, when you see providence, order, and law in the heavens and on earth, Know that there is a Lord and author more beautiful than of, of, the, of the universe, more beautiful than the stars themselves and the various parts of the whole world. When you see providence, order, and law. So of the whole universe, he said, in the heavens and on earth, everything, from the, from the stars down to the minutest parts of mat- matter, the whole universe is suffused with order. That's different from the ID movement. They're looking at, like, particular biological right 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 all right and the third thing is that the the intelligent design movement is basically saying they have this either war and we can get to that later and this is at the root of a lot of atheism they think because they think the same way as the atheists actually that it's either you have natural explanations or god is the explanation that it's one Mm -hmm. or the other and therefore where do you look for god if, if it's God as an explanation or natural explanations, well, according to the ID movement, the way you look for God in things that have no natural explanation, in, where, where somehow science breaks down, we have a phenomenon that you can't explain naturally. That's not the traditional view. The traditional view, first of all, is that God is the cause of all things, including all natural phenomena. God is the cause of things that have natural explanations and things that don't. He's the cause of everything. But primarily where you look for God is in nature. Because nature is God's handiwork, you see. Nature nature is God's creation. And so just as you would look for evidence of Shakespeare in his play and evidence of Mozart by looking at his symphony, you look at evidence of God. You see it everywhere. The whole natural world is evidence of God. Okay, so w- why should the order, uh, let's grant that the universe is orderly, all right? Uh, 
why why should that be taken as you know evidence of God, right? So there's the famous you probably heard the, the famous you know, debate between Bertrand Russell and uh, Copleston, you know Frederick Copleston. Yeah, I know the, Frederick Copleston. Yeah, yeah, so, so you know the debate. And, yeah, he's and, a very you know, good. By the way, Frederick Copleston wrote a wonderful 15 volume history. Yeah, of yeah, he's he's very and, yeah. So there's this famous debate, and basically I recommend you read it. It's very good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I got it over there on my shelf. So so the uh, that's where um, everything I know about philosophy. Yeah, but no, that, and that because this, if you if you were to listen to that debate, and Russell is a more famous philosopher, and I every time I listen to it, I feel like Copleston gets the the best of that argument. But but um. But some just explain. I mean, I mean, because what Russell will say, well, okay, we have a universe. It's uh, it exists. It has these orderly uh, features. You know, it has laws, and I mean, it just it's there. So why? What's the argument for why we shouldn't just take the universe? At, it's here. Oh, you can. You see, that's the thing. You know, the kind of funny thing. Uh, I find it very amusing, actually. Uh, the thing that atheists often say about religious people is that religious people check their brains at the door. We don't ask questions. We just say what we're told. We, we think, we, 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 we just accept what we're told. We don't ask questions. But actually there's two very big questions where the religious person thinks that they're meaningful questions and, and thinks there must be an answer to them. And the atheist says, well, I don't have an answer and I therefore don't think there is an answer. And I stop asking that question. One is why is there a universe at all? I think that's a meaningful question. I think there must be a reason why there's a universe. The atheist says, as, as you said, it just is. There is a universe. Get used to it. It's a fact, Jack. There's a universe. Don't ask why. Because there's no reason why. It just is. Now, what you have there is one person saying, that's a meaningful and interesting, important question. And I think there's an answer. And the other person saying, I, I don't know of an answer, and I therefore I am going to say there is no answer, and I'm going to stop asking. And the same thing with why the universe is orderly. But, and you can do that. You can say, I'll simply take that as a brute fact. That's always a possibility. With, confronted with anything, you can say, I simply take that as a given, and I'm not going to ask why. And the same thing with why the universe is orderly. It is logically possible to say there's no reason. It just is orderly. Now, of course, that attitude, some, maybe, maybe, maybe they're right. There may be questions that seem important and meaningful that simply don't have answers. There may be that the universe exists just as a brute fact with no cause. That could be. That's logically, if you can't, that's logically a self-consistent position. Some of us don't think that's intellectually satisfying. And, you know, and there are many contexts in which if you said, oh, the, you know, the sun shines, why is that? And somebody could say, it just does, you know, get, you know, just shines. Don't ask why. It, it, it's a fact. Look, it shines. That's the way it is. It's just a brute fact. Now, we would look at that person in that case and say, you have no intellectual curiosity. If, if we had your attitude, we wouldn't have done science at all. And so I, I, who is more scientific in the sense? Well, I'm, in a certain way, the religious person is actually saying, no, this is a question we have to think about. And, and, there's, and we have to, there's an answer there. And we should look for that answer. So, and this question, why there's a universe at all, is not a question then that the, let's call it the scientific method, whatever we mean by that. It's a sort of answer. science. Yeah, right. I, well, I, I mean, but so what, someone, so, so I say. No such thing as the scientific okay, method. Okay, okay, well, I, I know that. So, let, <laughs> but let, so, but I mean, okay, we want to know, I mean, okay, so I, 
sympathetic with this presentation. I mean, I mean but uh, I mean, I agree with, basically with this criticism of the, uh, the atheists. But no, I'm just saying that, it's fine. Yeah, they're, they're yeah, yeah. You can't defeat that because it's logically it's a person. It is an option. OK, but now I'm a, I'm the atheist who doesn't want to just be the sort of like close minded intellectual uh, fetist of atheist or whatever. And I say, no. I'm not saying that there's uh, so I'm not Bertrand Russell. I'm someone else. I'm not, I'm not saying that there's no uh, uh, that this isn't an important question. I'm just saying that if we're going to find the answer to this question, we're going to do it through whatever we're going to call it, a scientific method. And there's just no way that scientific method is going to produce an answer. OK, let which, me, say, let's, which says God. OK, right. OK, yeah. no, it's not going to produce any answer. And I'll tell you why it's okay. not going to produce any answer. And after either of those questions, and that's, I think, let's let's talk about that. Okay, good. I think that's gets you know among the many things I would like to, we could talk about. That's a very big one. So first of all, let's not use scientific method. I think I think philosophers okay. of science don't like that. Term. So yeah, give me a term. Let's just talk about science. Science. Okay. okay. All right. Science. Okay. There's probably there are many ways scientists go about doing things. I mean, it, generally, yes, there's repeatable experiments, and there's so and so forth. Um. There are a lot of things that go into the way science operates, uh, but let's just call it science. And uh, okay, first of all, uh, let's take take the orderliness of nature. Let's let's specify not just the order of nature, but the laws of nature. It's, by the way, I want to make a historical point. Not only have Christians been emphasizing uh, and Jews uh, emphasizing that nature is orderly since ancient times and saying that there's a cause of order and that's God. But the idea, the very idea that there are laws, of, that, 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 that nature is lawful, that also has biblical roots, by the way, because God is a lawgiver. You know, he's a lawgiver in the, in, in the Bible. He's described not only as the lawgiver to, 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 to the people of Israel or to mankind, but as a lawgiver to the cosmos. So you started with the idea of God as a lawgiver. And that is actually where the idea of laws of physics come from, because historians say that the idea of that there are mathematical laws of physics that arose in the 1600s, uh, but from uh, Descartes and Newton. And they were, in, part of their thinking was that the universe is governed by mathematical laws, which are law ordinances of God. See, it's the idea that God is a lawgiver that, that was uh, behind their idea of mathematical laws of nature. So just so for the atheists out there who are want to, I just want them to realize that when they invoke the laws of nature, uh, they're, they're, they're invoking something that has Christian roots. But let's take the laws of nature, which are one, which are, you know, sort of the quintessential example of the orderliness of nature. Why are there laws? Now, physics which is the most, if you'll excuse me for saying so, the most fundamental branch of science, because it's looking for what are the ultimate laws of nature. Physics does not attempt to explain why there are laws of nature. Physics assumes that there are laws of nature and tries to find out what they are. Now, how, now we do explain laws of nature in physics, but how do we do that? We always explain a law of nature by showing that it is a consequence of a deeper, more comprehensive law. So, for example, uh, in if, about the year 1600, Johannes Kepler, a devout Lutheran, I should say, since you're at a Lutheran university, Johannes Kepler 
a devout Lutheran, he discovered three famous laws of planetary motion, Kepler's laws of planetary motion. Now we understand those, why, why there are those laws now, because those laws were shown by Isaac Newton about 80 or 90 years later, 70 or 80 years later, to be consequences of deeper laws, which were Newton's laws of mechanics and gravity. From Newton's laws, you can derive Kepler's laws. So now we know why there are Kepler, why are there Kepler's laws? Because of Newton's laws of, of mechanics and gravity. But now we actually have a deeper understanding. We understand why there are Newton's laws of gravity, because they are a consequence of deeper laws, namely Einstein's theory of gravity. Uh, and we don't yet know this for sure, but it seems there's a strong case to be made that Einstein's theory of gravity, the reason there is Einstein's theory of gravity is that it is a consequence of a deeper theory called superstring theory, but that's still speculative. But in every case, whenever you explain a law in the physical sciences, it is always by deriving, showing that it is a consequence of deeper laws. Most people who are, most physicists, at least in my field of physics, believe that as you go down deeper and deeper, eventually you're not going to keep going. For, it's not turtles all the way down. You're not, it's not like there's always more, another layer to peel away. That somewhere there's a bedrock, that there are the fundamental laws, the deepest laws of nature. And most physicists just feel that in their bones. And actually, there's a lot of historical basis for thinking that. So there's a deepest set of laws. Now, how would we explain those laws? Well, not in the way that physics always does, because as I said, you always explain the law by a deeper law, but if these are the deepest laws, you can't do that. They are the deepest laws. There's no deeper laws to appeal to. So when you get to that point, you have to face the question, why are there these laws? Where do these deepest laws come from? Physics doesn't tell you that. The methods of physics don't tell you that, but for reasons I just explained. And physics never tries to explain the very fact while physics might try to explain this law by a deeper law, the very fact that there are any laws, why are there laws at all? Physics never has tried to explain that, nor does it have any techniques or way of explaining that. That is, for physics, just a, a, a starting point. You know, we see that there are laws, and we want to find out what the, what the deepest ones are. It doesn't try to explain why there are laws. So if uh, so, I would and there's no science that can ever answer that question. The science will never well, answer. I, I, the I question. would ask. I would simply yeah. say this: in the yeah. entire history of mankind, or humankind, there are three. Uh, there, there's basically two answers to that question: Why are there laws? Mm -hmm. One is there's a giver of laws, an, a lawgiver, a giver of order. This is the theistic answer. You may not like it. You may say it's wrong. Okay. There's no other explanation anyone has ever given. The atheist answer, I said there are two answers. The atheist answer is there's no answer. It just is. That's the way it is. And that you and you are free to choose between those. And it depends on why on what basis would you choose? Which is more intellectually satisfying? which answer coheres with other things that I know. I mean, ultimately we want a view of reality that makes the most sense of reality. We want a view of reality that, that uh, 
that somehow it has a lot of explanatory power. I think that believing in God, you see, allows me to understand a lot of things about the world. First of all, it gives me an answer. The only answer anyone's ever suggested for why there's laws, because somebody conceived of them. You know, if somebody's playing a game, if somebody's observing a game of, now some laws don't need an explanation. The laws of arithmetic don't need an explanation. Why do numbers obey the laws of arithmetic? They, there's no, they have to by mathematical necessity. It's not like they need a lawgiver. That numbers didn't obey any rules until along came a lawgiver and said, now two plus two shall equal four. No, the laws of mathematics have to be what they are. But that's not true of other types of laws, including the laws of physics. So I suppose I'm observing, I don't know any, I'm, I'm from some country that's never heard of a game of chess. And I come and I watch people playing a game of chess. They're playing a game that has rules. Why are there those rules? Not by some absolute necessity, because the game of chess could have different rules. Uh, those rules, the reason the pieces, bishops move along diagonals and rooks along ranks and files and pawns go this way and knights go this way and so forth, is because somebody decided upon those rules. The players said, let's play chess according to these rules. Okay, let me... So there was a, there was mm -hmm. a decision to choose those rules and not other rules. And, that, and, and the laws of physics are to the universe the way the laws of a game or the rules of a game are to a game. The laws of physics are the rules of this, let's call it a game, not to say that's not a serious thing, but the laws of physics are the rules of the universe and are completely analogous to the rules of chess for a chess game. And so we know many examples of things that follow rules because someone laid down the rules. And so that's a perfectly reasonable explanation of why the universe was following rules. Somebody laid them down. You, because there's an infinite number of possible mathematics. First of all, the universe didn't have to have any laws. But if you, even if you say the universe has to have laws for some reason, some, you know, for some reason, has to have laws. And even if you say those laws have to be in the form of mathematical equations, which is a big assumption, there's still an infinite number of equations that you could have been the laws of the universe, just infinite number of, of, of different possible laws. So the fact that the universe has laws, that they're mathematical, and that they're these particular laws, well, I have an answer to that. Somebody laid down those as the rules. Now, if you don't like that, fine. But I mean, if somebody doesn't like that, fine. They don't, I can't prove that to them. It is a coherent explanation, but sort of is analogous to, as I said, other rule governed systems that we know about, like games and games or, or political systems, the rules of our country, you know. Um, but you're perfectly free to simply say no. As I said, you always have the logical possibility of saying that there's no reason at all. So would you, there, there's a sort of a, I don't know, a kind of standard uh, philosophical presentation of, of uh, that distinguishes between nature and supernature, or the you know, something like this. I think that, like I think C.S. Lewis sometimes lays this mm -hmm. out. So there's a nature, or the natural world, or I don't know what it is, but the, the nature, and then there's a supernature, which is sort of the domain where God is going to be somehow. Uh, but somehow the and there's some sort of connection, but they're sort of separate domains. So is that a is that a view you would subscribe to that there's a nature and a supernature or is that somehow not satisfying 
Well, then, then word nature is very tricky, yeah. and we could spend hours and hours. It means many different things, uh, even within theology. Uh, but but uh, as, uh, let me talk as a physicist. Yeah. So as a Catholic physicist, as a phys- so we have the we have the universe, uh, mm-hmm. and it's made up of all the. It includes a lot of things we can sense and a lot of things we can't sense, but we can infer their existence. But it's a, a big interacting, single interacting system. We could talk about multiverses, but even multiverses, as physicists think of them, are really just a multiverse is a type of universe. It's a single, ultimately a single interacting system. And so we know that this big interacting system of which we are parts uh, well, it certainly has physical stuff in it. It has other things in it which we could argue about whether they're physical or not, like minds, like the human mind or the minds of animals. Now, that's a very interesting thing uh, to talk about. Um, it, are the minds of animals or the minds of human beings, are they just physical, expl- explainable in terms of physics? Well, we can discuss that. But that's certainly part of the, they're certainly the minds of animals, and the minds of human beings are part of this universe. Um, and they have effects within the universe in, in a sort of predictable way. And, and you know, it, even if you think of, of minds as distinct from matter, they certainly interact with each other in certain ways. I mean, it, it could be minds are just a material phenomena, but even if they're not just matter, they certainly interact with matter, you know. Right. Um, but that's and so it's part of the, this big system that we're part of. Now, is there anything beyond this system? Well, I would say, yes, God. God is not a part of the... So the radical distinction in theology, in Christian theology, an absolutely radical distinction is between the creator on the one hand and everything created, which is everything else on the other hand. So there's mm-hmm. the creator and the created. Now the created, what, what, uh, so there's that, and God, and there's just, there's no, that, that's an un, you know, you're either created or you're the creator, one or the other. Yeah, now, right. among the created things, there's certainly the physical world, and, and not just the physical, but everything part of our universe, including ourselves, including our minds. Are there, are there, are there parts of, the cre- of creation that are not part of this world? It could be other universes. Even you know, physicists talk about, you know, hypothetically, you know, it could be another physical universe that has nothing to do with ours. Philosophers talk about that. Maybe, maybe we're not the only universe. It could be another universe that has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, angels. Now, uh, I would say an angel is not a part of this universe. Now, you could get disagreements among theologians about that. But the traditional view is that angels are not physical. They're purely intellectual beings. They have no, they're not material. So they're certainly not part of this physical universe. Unlike us, even though we have minds, we, we also have bodies and we're part of this physical universe. Okay, so but you they could might say that angels are, angels are created beings, yeah. but they're beyond, I would say they're beyond this physical order that we live in. Uh, so it's an interesting question. We, I, I can't tell you everything. <laughs> Uh, do I believe there's nature and supernatural? Well, but well, maybe that's, that's not the most useful ca- way of categorizing it. I mean, it might be that this universe, uh, you described as sort of the universe, and then the creator may be a more useful uh, way of drawing the distinction. I, I don't know. I think about it versus this nature, supernature. Um, I, I don't know. 
Well, I mean, nature and supernature, nature is a very tricky phenomenon because you could talk about, nature is used in many different ways, I said, even within theology. Yeah. What, what do we mean? So, um, uh, but well, I, I mean, the question is, what, what are you driving at? Like, are you asking about supernatural phenomena? Are you asking about miracles? Uh, yeah, you, yeah. What, I mean, one could define terms until the cows come home. Well, I guess ways, so. You might be ultimately what doesn't matter is what matters is not so much as words mm -hmm. and how we use them. What matters is is claims or ideas. So, like, like what are we dealing with? Here? All right. So let's let's go. Okay. So let's say I'm not going to answer that exactly, but let's say okay. You you persuaded me that you know there are at least good reasons for uh, believing there is a God as a creator because you boil it down to these two choices and. The idea that there's it, it basically provides more of a satisfying explanation than that. Well, it just is, which is really well, not an answer well, at all. I mean, to some of yeah. us, some people. Right, right, but, OK, so let's say. Yeah, right. To some of us. But let, let I mean, that's OK. You, you persuaded me of that. Um, but now, of course, that doesn't really get me. Um, so now I got God mm -hmm. right as this being that's the creator of everything. Uh, but I haven't really got very much more from this. You know, right. I don't have all of the um uh, the nitty-gritty that we associate with um you know believing a particular faith right? right so i so how how are we supposed to so let's let's think about that in terms of i guess these are in so, there's some connection to the idea of revelation but what are we supposed to do how are we supposed to go from well, uh right. god to the to specific you know content doctrines or dogmas of okay. faith so let me say how I would go about this. Okay, all right. <laughs> My own thought process. Yeah, okay. So first of all, all I'm saying, by the way, I'm not claiming, you know, I didn't say, you know, you said there are good, re are, are, I say there are reasons to believe that I find uh, powerful, that there is a cause of being. By the way, let, can we back up the one? Yeah, sure. One yeah, yeah. So I said physics does just, isn't telling you why there are laws or why the universe is orderly. It just is trying to investigate, find out what the laws are. In the same way, physics doesn't tell you why there's a universe at all. And we could talk about that later because I think it's a very fundamental okay. point. Uh, it, it, and I want—I think this is something that we really should go, go back to because okay. it's all right, very all right. basic. So um, Haw Stephen Hawking, towards the end of his life, he wrote a book with his fellow uh, Leonard Mladenow, and he said, uh, we can understand why there's a universe because uh, quantum gravity, the laws of quantum gravity will explain how the universe began. Now, first of all, the question of how, what went on at the beginning of the universe is not the same thing as the question of why there's a universe, okay? Uh, and I'll use an analogy there. What goes on at the beginning of a novel is just a bunch of words at the beginning of the novel. It doesn't tell you why there's a novel. Now, the, the novel, A Tale of Two Cities by Dickens, begins with the words, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. If somebody asks you, why is there a novel, A Tale of Two Cities? It would be kind of silly to say, oh, I, I point to the first words of the novel and say, that's why. Because it was because of these words, the best of times, it was the best. Of, those are just the beginning of the novel. In the same way, you if you ask why there's a certain symphony, like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, well, it has some more notes at the beginning. Da 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 da. You know, if someone said, Why is it Beethoven's Fifth Symphony? He said, Because of da 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 da. People would think you're nuts because you would be nuts. 
Because the question, the one question is how does something begin? What went on at the beginning of it? What goes on at the beginning? And the other is why does it exist? Why is there a symphony? Why is there a novel? So what physics can tell you someday, to a large extent now, but not fully, but someday hopefully fully, what happened at the beginning of the universe? What physical processes were going on? How did the universe begin? What it doesn't tell you is why there's a universe. Why is there a real universe? Why does it exist? The person who, who understood this very clearly was him, Stephen Hawking. In 1988, he wrote a, a famous popular book called uh, A Brief History of Time. And in that book, he asked the important question, or he made an important observation. He said, all of that a theory of physics gives you is a set of rules and equations, a set of mathematical rules and equations. It cannot tell you, and that's what he used, it cannot, it cannot tell you why there is an actual universe for those equations to describe. And then he said, what breathes fire into the equations? So there is an actual universe for them to describe. And I'll use an analogy again with a game. Take a, any game, chess or baseball, take your choice, so any game. So let's take baseball. There's rules to baseball. Those, as I said, are analogous to the laws of physics to the universe. There's a rules or the govern baseball. It's laws. I could have a book of the laws of baseball. They will tell me the kinds of things that can happen in a baseball game. They tell me the order in which they can happen, how one thing in a baseball game gives, causes another thing. Three strikes causes you to be out. <laughs> you get touched, get to first base, you're out. It tells you all sorts of stuff about what goes on in a baseball game and the circumstances and manner in which they happen. It even tells you how the baseball game begins and how it ends. But what the rules do not tell you is whether there's an actual game of baseball being played or ever been played or ever will be played, nor do the rules by themselves, just the rules, have the power to make there be a real baseball game. And in the same, that's what Hawking was saying. The rules of this universe are just a set of rules. They don't have the power to make there be an actual real existing universe described by those rules. Now, why is there an actual existing universe described by these rules? You can say it just is again, or you can say God is the cause of being. So God is the cause of being. Okay. I want to get that on the table as another thing physics cannot explain. Mm -hmm. Physics okay. describes the universe, but doesn't say why there's a universe that to be described. Mm -hmm. So again, so that, that's what I, I wanted to back up to that, but I've okay. now gotten away from where you wanted to go, but I wanted to get that on the table. Okay, so, okay. good, all right. So let's go back now. So you-, you oh, How do you get to- God, How do we get from that to, to the, the nitty, the, the nitty okay. gritty? By the way, that I just, those are, uh, those are two arguments just from the physical world that it exists and it's orderly. That's not the only reason right. to believe in God, okay? There's, I think there are others, but- so I would say, first of all, they don't tell you anything much about God, except right. there is something, that, there is a cause of being, and there's a cause of order. 
it doesn't tell you much else. Right. Now, and we can say, we can say whatever that is, we can call it God. But we, one thing we do know is that whatever that is, it's not, a, it's not part of the universe because it's the cause of the universe. And it would be somewhat circular to say it is just, so it's not a physical thing. It also is not something that changes because change is, uh, is a feature of, of, of these things. You know, it's, it, it's, not have, it's not characterized by time and space because right. time and space are part of the world and that this is the cause of. <laughs> right, right, and so right. whatever it is, is sort of beyond time and space, it's beyond matter, beyond, it's not part of the universe. Um, you have to say that in some way it, it's intelligent. Now, here's the thing that traditional Christianity warns us, not that any language we use about God is purely analogical because all of our language is based on our experience. So, and, and things we, you know, part of our, our, our things in this world. So when we use the word intelligent, we're talking about intelligent people or intelligent animals or something like that. But God is not a part of our experience in that way. And so we, we, we're making an analogy there. We're saying God, but we, whenever we see some, say, take the laws of physics, they're not only are they just, are they laws, but they're laws of incredible sophistication, mathematically sophisticated. Right, right. There's very deep mathematics there. Now, one would be tempted if one saw something somebody, some artifact or something that had very deep ideas behind it was to say that whoever, whoever was the cause of that thing was pretty smart. <laughs> that is, um, if the universe is based on very deep ideas, then the, whoever is the sort of the cause of the universe must be, uh, one would be tempted to think is a, a being who had very deep ideas. It was, in some sense, intelligent. Though I would say, not intelligent the way we are. That is, God's intelligence is as much beyond ours as ours is beyond maybe uh, a worm or something. So we we don't, we don't want to anthropomorphize God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think you could say something about God being intelligent. I also think one could say that God is good. Um. And, and my argument for that, this is just my argument. Yeah, I'm sure okay. other people have made it. Suppose I'm writing a novel. And in the, in the novel, there's a character of, who's tremendously witty. Well, and, has a, and there's another character who has a, a, a really good sense of humor. It'd be hard for me to write such a novel unless I had some wit and humor. <laughs> that is... If, if I had a novel in which there's a character who manifested extremely high intelligence, it'd be hard for me to write that novel if I was a moron. Mm -hmm. uh, or to write a novel in which there's a lot of humor if I'm humorless. And so it seems to me that if God created a world in which you have characters like Mother Teresa or Dietrich Bonhoeffer, to use a nice Lutheran example, if you have characters in this world who manifest great wisdom, uh, virtue, holiness, goodness, benevolence, and so on, it's hard for me to believe that whatever is the cause of this whole thing would be something that is sort of mindless, inert, 
evil. Uh, you know, so I, I think one can argue that God is, since he must somehow be greater than what he's created, I think you can make a case that God is wise and intelligent and good and so forth. I find it very hard to believe that an evil God could create, because someone who's evil is somehow lower than somebody who's good. Somebody who's, who's unwise is somehow lower than someone who's wise. I, I, I don't think a God who's unwise or God who's evil or malevolent could have created a world in which you find you know, such altruism and, and, or a God. So from the fact that there are these things in the created world, I think we can infer something about whatever is the cause of it all. That still doesn't take it to Christianity, but it, I think it predisposes one to believe. Also, we're clearly in some obvious way important in the cosmic scheme. Now you can argue, yeah, we're just, and this gets to some interesting physics. You could argue, yeah, but we're just on this tiny blue dot lost in the immensity of space. How can we be important when the universe is so vastly bigger than we are? And so on? But there's a sense in which even Bertrand Russell, whom you quoted earlier, uh, would, would have said that he doesn't find anything in the astronomical universe that's as important as human beings. Human beings are of more value than everything in the, in, and more to be admired than everything else in the, in, un, at least the uninhabited parts of the astronomical universe. So we are important. We're obviously something very special in this universe. Now, it's hard for me to believe that, that who, whoever or whatever is the cause of this universe doesn't have some special regard for we, for us, since we are really in some way, among all the things we know about in the universe, sort of like the highest. The, I, I think there's a good chance there's extraterrestrial rational beings out there, but, let, but certainly among parts of the world we know about at the present, which, there's nothing higher than us. I think one human being is worth more than an entire uninhabited galaxy. Mm-hmm. I, I would care more about the death of a child than if you told me that some uninhabited galaxy was, was disintegrated or annihilated who cares? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So we're clearly important in some way. I find it very, and we can see that. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I find it hard to believe that, 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 that the creator of this world would not have some special regard for us, would not love us. If we, lo- if we, if we, if we, we lowly creatures of dust can recognize that other human beings are, are worthy of being loved, it's hard for me to believe that God would not love us. Again, we're speaking with analogies. So I think we can get to the idea of God as loving and that God would therefore might want to save us from death. God might want us to be in some relationship with him. That's perfectly reasonable. So I I think it doesn't get you to Christianity, but it predisposes you when you start thinking about what characteristics might the creator of this world have. uh, I I think it gets you, it predisposes you to see the, the uh, reasonableness of a lot of what Christianity says. It doesn't get you there. To get there, you have to have divine revelation. That is, you might say, well, there's philosophical reasons to believe that there's a God. That's one thing. But what makes Christianity, what the basis of Christianity is not a philosophical speculation. It's the claim that this God 
has revealed himself to us. And without that, you don't have Christianity. Uh, and, and similarly, Judaism and Islam are based on the idea that God has revealed himself to us. If you don't have a divine revelation, then you're simply at the level of philosophical speculation. And that's, and that's so if we get as far the, as you can get. And the God who's you know, interested in us, right, and loving and so forth, and, and these qualities. We, well, you might, you gonna... might get to that point, but that would remain at the level. Right. It would be, as Pascal said, that's the God of the philosophers. Yeah. Not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But, but you can assume at that point that this that such a God would be interested in uh, sort of establishing contact, or, or we could say. Yeah, yeah. I would say yeah. I would say so. That revealing yeah. himself to us, having a having communion with us, having a, having us be in relation with him. So uh, and and that and so uh, and so I combine that. This is my own way of thinking. So I, I find that all very reasonable as a possibility. And then along comes this religion that claims that there's a God who is the characteristic, has all the characteristics that sort of philosophical theism gives you, that he's infinite, that he's omnipotent, that he's omniscient, and so on. And that he's the cause of being. And that he loves us, he's our creator, the creator of, the, of everything, and that he revealed himself to us in order to bring us into communion with him. And, um, and, that, and, 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 and then you have the whole okay, so you know, here's gospel, the last the Christian revelation. And I say that, you know, that makes not only makes a lot of sense, but it kind of fits together with what I was sort of philosophically disposed to believe anyway. Right. So, so, but this is sort of my, so what, what is the, I'm not sure I'm going to phrase this question correctly, but what is the, the subject of revelation or, or what kind of knowledge is it that is trying, that is communicated through revelation? So I'm, I'm thinking in the back of my mind about the difference between the kind of knowledge that, you know, through science we're trying to acquire and the kind of knowledge that is, uh, communicated through revelation. I mean, okay. so that's revelation. That's again, yeah. I'm, I'm speaking as a Catholic. And so, you know, I, I'm not, I think actually my answer, the answers were very similar to those given by a Protestant or other kind of Christian or a Muslim or a Jew, mm -hmm. but I'm going to speak as a Catholic. So revelation, first of all, it's, it's God reveals. So, uh, and he primarily is revealing himself and and it, it's a it's a it's a self revelation, but it's it's a revelation that includes not truths about himself, but not just that truths about ourselves, truths about the world, truths about but especially about us and how we should live our lives in relate how we should be in relationship with him, what should be the proper relationship between ourselves and our creator. So uh, revelation, you know, God isn't revealing stuff like, you know, what's the best recipe for, you know, this food or how, to, how do you, what's the best way to raise crops or, you know, what he's not revealing practical information about uh, how to carry on in this world. That's not the purpose of revelation from the Catholic point of view. Or, or the purpose would you of say revelation is ultimately to bring us into, uh, is to bring us into communion with God. It's ultimately has to do with our salvation. 
So personal. A, okay, so per, somehow God's revealing His pers, person, I guess, or it's it's self revelation. So it's re, the the the, the so that we can so that we can be in relationship, re, be in relation with Him. And so it's not even scientific knowledge that oh. is the object or subject of revelation. It would right. be that would be you'd be looking uh, if you look to revelation to understand um, to get science scientific answers. You would be you'd be looking in the wrong place. That's just not what, right. the, what revelation is. Yeah. Right. God, okay. let, you know, it, how to, how to conduct it, you know, how to, uh, God left it to us and our reason to uh, figure out the things we need to, uh, to make our way in the world. So, you know, um, you know, agric I don't think agriculture started back 5,000 years ago, whenever it was, because God revealed to people how to, how to domesticate animals and plants and things. No, we have to, uh, most of what we know about conducting our affairs in this world, we have to discover by effort uh, of, of our reason, and investigation and so on. God is, God is revealing, God wants us to have a relationship, to be in relationship with him, to be in communion with each other. He wants us to be in communion. This is what Catholics believe and Christians believe. He wants us to be in proper relationship to each other and with him in, in a unity, in, in, in a unity born of love and, and truth. So he wants us, since God, according to Christian revelation, and again, I think this makes a lot of sense philosophically, God is truth, God is love. God wants us to create a, 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 a unity, a, a, a sort of communion of humans with each other and with him. And, um, and it's to create that, that, that unity, that communion of persons that, that he reveals himself to us. Um, and it's the same way with human beings. So, you know, there are things about, uh, how do I know you? Now I can know about physical stuff, electrons and stuff. I can set up lab, I don't set up laboratories, I'm a theorist, but you know, people can set up laboratories and study electrons and, and, and study uh, plants and study and other things. How do we know each other as persons? I can't know you as a person by put, sticking electrodes in you and, and, and stuff like that and uh, putting you in a maze like a rat, having you run around. If I'm gonna know you as a person, you have to, I have to know your mind. And that's not something accessible from the outside by empirical methods. I, I mean, it is to some extent, you say things to me and I can infer things about what you're thinking, but, but that's the whole point. In order to know you as a person, know, to know your mind and heart, you have to reveal yourself to me. You have to communicate with me. You have to talk to me. You have to say things to me about yourself. If you clam up, if you don't open yourself to me and reveal yourself to me, I can't know you. And so, you know, we could do all the scientific experiments. So even, even at the natural level with other human beings, there are things we cannot know unless the other person engages in a self-revelation. And I can't love my wife and I can't love another human being if there's no self-revelation going on. No way. And same way, how can we, we're not going to know God unless God reveals himself to us. Okay, well, uh, so Stephen Barr, thank you very much. It's very, yeah. uh, very enlightening. 
very good uh, and, and very interesting. And, and you definitely argue like a physicist. Mm -hmm.